0: Lord, as much as anybody, we are also in desperate need for You to minister the truths of the Scriptures to our hearts. We need You to make them clear. We need You to make them compelling. We need You to even engage our own hearts with the text this morning, Lord. We're prone to distraction. We're prone to boredom. We're prone to wild or random or unnecessary thoughts, God. We're poor listeners. We're poor studiers. And we need You to help us this morning to see the glorious significance of the truths of this text. That You're a God who saves. And You save unbiasedly. We need to remember that for our evangelism. We need to remember that as You work on people's hearts in the world. We need to remember that in our own lives, that You you are that sort of a Savior and a Lord to us even still. As we open these pages, Jesus, let us behold You and You alone. These words, they're about You. And we want our hearts to be drawn to You. In our understanding, we want our hearts to be thrilled with You. Oh Lord, we come from different backgrounds. We've all had a different sort of week. We're all facing different struggles and different joys and different heartaches and different um, cases of confusion and, and different questions and choices. And yet, We all need the same thing. We all need You to stir our hearts. We all need Your divine, tender, loving touch. We do pray for Lynn this morning and others who are with her and with Doug and Wendy and Natalie and Ashley and others who are attending that church service right now. We pray that as they hear the Gospel and the Scriptures in their own language, they would be saved. We pray, Lord, for any that are sitting here today who are not truly born again, they would hear the Gospel and Your Scriptures in their own language and they would be saved. For Your glorious purposes, Lord, meet with us now. In Jesus' name, Amen. This morning we will be in Luke chapter 18 and my hope was to be in Luke 18 verse 35 through Luke 19 verse 10. And that's how I studied and would have preferred to present these passages today, but um, upon laying them out, I found that to be impossible for me to do them justice. I need to take them separately. Uh, But I want to read them together because I want you to see the differences. And yet in the in the midst of those differences, the similarities and the the singular truth that's being taught in these two passages, Um, the chapters and verse numbers of our Bibles are incredibly helpful, uh, but they were not a part of the original writings. And so sometimes when they're entered into the text, they make um, difficult breaks and I'm not quite sure. Luke would have intended these two passages to be broken up because of what they are singularly teaching together about our Lord Jesus Christ. So look in verse um, 35 of chapter 18, and we're going to read through chapter 19, verse 10. But for this morning's purpose, we will only cover chapter 18, verse 35 through 43. You got that? All right. Verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Behold Lord the half of my goods I give to the poor and if I have defrauded any one of anything I restore it fourfold and Jesus said to him today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost one of the glorious blessings of reading through the gospels and preaching through them and studying through them and And all of that is seeing Jesus interact with and save the lost and sinful people of the world. Uh, The lost and sinful people specifically that he encounters, because that's who he's always encountering, right? He has these conversations all the time. Uh, He has these interactions all the time with those who don't have it all together, with those who are broken, with those who are unwanted, with those who are Cast out from society and cast out even from their families. uh, The lowly kinds of people of society. He finds people who are confused about God. He finds people who are openly in sin. He finds people who are wrestling. He finds people who are even against Him. And you know what He does? He seeks them out. He welcomes them near. He saves them. And he uses them. The 12 disciples are a glaring example of that, right? Ignorant men, uneducated as they'll be described in Acts, and yet sought out by Christ, saved, and used. And I don't know about you guys, but that gives me tremendous hope for myself and comfort because I identify with these people. I'm broken, I don't have it all together, I'm way often confused. I still struggle with sin. And yet we find in the Gospels this Savior who goes after such people and draws them near to Himself and and embraces them in, in a warm and a tender and gentle spirit and guides them and saves their souls and puts them in His employment to further the very Gospel that's changed their lives. Well, that's what we come to see yet again. In chapter 18 and chapter 19 of Luke's gospel. Two different stories. Two different characters. Yet both of them needing and discovering Jesus. The first character is a nameless blind man in Luke's gospel. Mark actually includes his name. In Mark chapter 10 verse 46 we find out the man's name is Bartimaeus. Luke doesn't include his name. Because Luke wants the attention to be on Jesus not the individual. This man, for our purposes, we'll call him the nameless blind man or we might call him the roadside beggar. Jesus interacts with this roadside beggar. We'll find out that he is a total outcast from society. He is, as I've said, a beggar, which means he's poor, lives in poverty. We find out that he's physically broken. Physically disabled. But also emotionally broken and certainly spiritually broken. In fact, broken might not be an accurate enough word. Spiritually dead. We find that he is treated as insignificant. He's rejected from the crowd. Resisted by the crowd. But we'll also find out that this nameless blind man fights hard to get to Jesus. In fact, he wants Jesus at all costs. The other man we encounter has a name. His name is Zacchaeus. We have a little song about Zacchaeus. I won't sing it, but the kids will later. He's a rich man in contrast. uh, We even have some of his physical features described to us that I identify with. He's a short man. He's also equally hated. And equally an outcast. Because of his profession, nobody wants or likes Zacchaeus. He's given to us in Luke's gospel as a contrast to the rich young ruler. Chapter 18, verse 24 through 27. This rich young ruler young ruler encounters Jesus and loves his riches too much to give them up for Christ. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, is rich and gives everything up to follow Jesus. We also know that from uh, Zacchaeus' life, his sort of repentance goes to his most prized possession. It's not a superficial repentance. His repentance lends him to say, "I'll, I'll give away half of my money. And I'll change how I acquire it. And on and on and on. Lots of differences and yet very similar individuals. One is seeking Jesus and Jesus welcomes him. The other one, Jesus seeks him and he welcomes Jesus. But again, both of them desperate and in dire need of Christ. And both of them find the grace of Jesus extended when nobody else would think that they were worthy. We come down to chapter 19, verse 18. 10, and here's the point I think of Luke including these two texts together chapter 19 verse 10 the son of man came to seek and to save the lost And church with these two individuals one poor, one rich that tells us that Jesus has an impartial passion to save all kinds of lost Consider the, the profound statement of Luke 19, verse 10, just for a moment. That Jesus Himself came seeking out the lost. Not the, the religious elite, not those who are powerful and in, influential, not those who have it all together, not those who have a great retirement or, or are set up on a, on a significant financial pattern or, or, or a trajectory in their life. It's not those who are the politically uh, influential or who seemingly have it all together. He's seeking the imperfect, the unworthy, the unwanted. And why is he seeking them? To judge them? To condemn them? To issue a penalty and punishment? He's seeking the unwanted, the discarded, the undesirable, so that he might save them. That's the Jesus we encounter in the Gospels. And that's the Jesus we're encountering right here in Luke chapter 18 and Luke chapter 19. And church, that, that says so much to our hearts, doesn't it? This is our Savior. Seeking and saving the lost. Well, let's first consider today this nameless blind man, this nameless beggar. In verse 35, we begin to encounter him as Luke starts giving us some descriptions of Jesus's location and the life of this begging individual, all to summarize that Jesus cares for those whom you would never expect he would care for. Uh, that's going to be proof by the crowd. They're not going to expect Jesus to care for this man, but He most certainly does. In verse 35, Jesus is coming close to this big city named Jericho. Jericho was a major city on a major trade route just direct, uh, directly east of Jerusalem. So it was the gateway city for all these eastern regions and countries and, and to the Jordan and the eastern route of the Jordan Uh, all of those people wishing to travel that way would go to Jericho. That's also where you did a lot of business. In fact, a lot of priests who served in the temple in Jerusalem wouldn't live in Jerusalem, they would live in Jericho. And so there's a lot of influence there, a lot of wealth there. It's why Zacchaeus will be declared rich because he's a tax collector in a very rich community, in a wealthy city. It has a large population, covers a large area, and Jesus is drawing near to this city, which tells us he's not yet in the city. He's close to it, and that tells us something about our individual. He encounters Jesus outside of Jericho, which means he's not in the city limits, most likely because he's not welcome there. Out of all this wealth and all these people and all these trade routes and all these professions and all that's going on in this bustling uh, suburban of Jerusalem, there's no place for this beggar. Before Jesus even gets there is where we find this man. It's a clue to his social status, isn't it? We also find out in verse 35, he's sitting by the roadside which for us in this culture helps us see the sad scene that's being displayed. Him sitting by the roadside means that He's uh, displaying His poverty. His helplessness. His hopelessness. His desperation. He likely lived by the roadside. After all, He is blind. And being blind... And this time isn't like being blind today. His ability to get around is very, very limited. His ability to work for himself is near impossible. Perhaps this roadside position that he is found in right here in verse 35 is where he spent all of his time. Which is also significant because we know from the times living outside of the city, not only made you susceptible to wild critters coming around during night, but thieves who like to travel around outside of the cities and take advantage of those who are desperate and weak. Well, this man finally is, his most notable and obvious in verse 35, is begging. Not only does he live by this roadside, unable to find room and Jericho, all he can do for his survival is beg people and plead upon their generosity. As travelers are going by and merchants are going by, just perhaps maybe they'll drop a coin or two. And just perhaps maybe they'll give some food. And um, this is how the man makes his living. Sometimes you wonder, would a man like this be warmly welcomed among us today? He's dirty, not well groomed, not taken care of. He's alone. His clothing is less than acceptable in society. He's skin and bones. Other illnesses and diseases, I'm sure, have accompanied him and plagued him. And this is the man we find. It's in the consideration of his lifestyle that we would re-say he's in poverty, helplessness, hopelessness, and desperation. Verse 36, he employs one of his remaining senses. He hears some commotion. Commotion of a crowd Uh, walking by a crowd that's larger than normal a crowd that's most likely bigger than a um, trade caravan by this point in time that fits the description of Jesus's ministry remember a few weeks ago we were in uh, chapter 18 verse 31 through 34 talking about Jesus being set to go to Jerusalem he's on a mission on a purpose he's towards the end of his earthly ministry and by this time he's garnered a huge following. And it's this huge swath of people coming into Jericho towards Jerusalem that catch this man's attention that perhaps there's something bigger going on here. And I want to take advantage of it. Maybe out of a large crowd like this, somebody will drop a morsel of food. He's in for a bigger surprise, isn't he? Verse 37, the crowd tells him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. But they don't tell him eagerly. Like, hey, uh, get yourself ready. You know, dust off your coat. Clean up a little bit here. Stand to your feet. Jesus is coming and he might do something for you. No, they're going to be the ones who quiet him down. They just happen to answer his question. Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And really what they're saying there when they say Jesus of Nazareth. They're, they're emphasizing the individual. Jesus was a common name, especially in large populated cities like Jericho or Jerusalem. But they're saying it's the Jesus. The one whose reputation goes before Him. The, the, the Jesus that is the reason this crowd is following by. Well, upon hearing that in verse 38, the man apparently ignores the crowd And those who give him his blessed information. And what does he do? He begins to cry out. When the Bible uses that language. It it is conveying this deep and, and inner exclamation. That is almost uncontrollably bursting out. It's all this man can do. He can't keep himself from doing it. He learns that it is the Jesus and my only response is to cry out, to scream. And what does he scream? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There's two things to note out of verse 38 out of this man's cry. First would be the title. He explicitly ties the phrase Son of David to Jesus. Son of David is a messianic term. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. It it means the Christ as the New Testament would use it. And this man is applying that directly to Jesus. And by the way, it's the first time it's been applied to Jesus in Luke's Gospel. It's not the disciples who first called Jesus Son of David. It's not longtime followers. It's this blind, poor beggar on the side of the road who, though blind with his eyes, sees with his heart and knows the truth of this man from Nazareth coming into Jericho. Essentially, he's screaming, anointed one, long-awaited one, deliverer. Redeemer. The promised one of God. Turn your attention to me. James Edwards. A gentleman who wrote a very lengthy commentary on the Gospel of Luke. Said this about this phrase. He said it would be. A rare Jew. Who did not hear or use this term in messianic ways. It's a. Undoubted re- reality, this man is calling Jesus the Messiah. Messiah, son of David, hear me. Secondly, in verse 38, we ought to consider his request because it's a unique request, isn't it? He says, Have mercy on me. The first thing he says isn't, Come fix my eyes although that's most likely what he has in mind. That's going to be his statement later. But he's saying something more when he says mercy. He's acknowledging that Jesus has the authority and the power to issue such mercy. You don't also cry for mercy from your equals, do you? You cry for mercy from those who are greater than you. From those who are stronger than you. More glorious than you. Who have influence over you. This man hasn't even met Jesus yet. And the yet the, the phrase of his lips is mercy. An acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Now ultimately as I've said mercy can mean A lot of things, but at the very basic level, we know what this man is saying. He's saying, intervene in my life. I need intervening help. I need you, Jesus, to do something beyond what I can do or what anyone else can do. It's the same the same attitude of the tax collector in chapter 18, verse 13. This tax collector, in contrast to the Pharisee, is in the temple, he's standing far off. He's going to pray. He's not even lifting his eyes up to heaven. He's, he's beating his breast. And what does he say in verse 13? All he says is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's a different expression, a different phrase, same attitude. I need you to do what only you can do. I need you to intervene in a way that only you can intervene. I need you to break into my life in a way that only you can break into my life. That's why most people don't cry out like this man does. They don't want Jesus to break into their lives. This man in his place of desperation says, I have no other hope. I need you to intervene to do something beyond me. As we come to verse 39, we find an unsavory truth. Those who were in front, those who were in the crowd, rebuked this man. They told him to be silent. Perhaps they saw this individual as a waste of time. Maybe they even saw him as an obstacle to Jerusalem. After all, Jesus is on a mission. Jesus has uh, got a purpose. He, he's a man with a task. And Peter earlier tried to intervene and, and got called Satan. So we don't want somebody else to do the same thing. Let's not let this blind beggar guy be an obstacle to Jerusalem. Let's not let him get in the way of Jesus. Let, let's not um, let him be a distraction. Likely, this crowd thought Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem to overthrow the government and to usher in a new kingdom and a new glory for the capital of Jerusalem. And in such thoughts, a poor blind man on the side of the road wasn't worth the Lord's time or attention. or So they thought. Luke reports harsh language, rebuke, Rebuke is a a stern term. It's a forceful, unrelenting, uh, unwavering, or ungiving kind of term. An absolutist sort of term. And the rebuke involves another harsh term silence. Not one more word. Not one more distraction. Quiet yourself. I think a very similar sentiment will be expressed in chapter 19, verse 7. Again, a different phrase, different wording, different expression. Same heart behind it. And in chapter 19, verse 7, when Jesus is eating with Zacchaeus, the people are grumbling, saying, "Has He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Why is Jesus wasting His time with sinners? Why is Jesus wasting His time with The unwanted, the undesirable, the the disgusting, the smelling. As I was studying this text and thinking through that particular verse, verse 39 of chapter 18, I found it to be frightful as I wondered how often the people of God have prevented others from coming to Jesus. How often have we tried to determine who it is that Jesus gets to care about? How often is it our minds and our hearts and our perspectives that determines who God gets to love on and minister to and teach? I find that to be frightful. I hope we would never be the people described in James who have a special place for the rich man and a, a lowly place for the poor man I hope we would never be the people in uh, Zacchaeus's story oh look Jesus is with sinners he doesn't care about sinners he doesn't care about drug addicts or or, or uh, abusers or felons I hope we would never act like these people in verse 39. for the individual struggling with homosexuality who comes in with questions. Jesus doesn't have time for you. Thankfully, in verse 39, this blind man doesn't care. Look at his commendable act. He cried out all the more. He got even louder. He raised his voice to a new level. Perhaps he's now on his feet. And he's screaming even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. He cares way more about Jesus than he does his reputation. He cares way more about Jesus than he does what this crowd has to say. Nothing will deter him at this point. It's not going to be for lack of effort. It's not going to be because somebody else wrongly dictated something to Him. He's already exhibiting a sense of faith, isn't He? A sense of faith that Jesus is worth this effort. He's worth this persistence. He's worth this this crying out for. He's worth standing up and declaring His need. It's a determination that we ought to mimic in our pursuit of Christ. Jesus is worth chasing after church. He's worth chasing after at all costs. He's worth chasing after when an entire crowd tells you no. Our Lord is worth it. So unashamed, this, this blind man, he stands up and he begins yelling. And, and get the picture with me. He's yelling blindly. He's not looking in the general direction of Jesus. He has no idea. There's too much noise going on. Too many people. He's just standing up screaming. Hoping that from some direction, Jesus will hear will hear His voice. He doesn't know which way to look. He doesn't know which way to start walking. He doesn't know which way to start grabbing for. He just knows this crowd is present and somewhere in this crowd, Jesus is there. I'm going to scream for Jesus until He hears, hears me and comes for me. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 40, Jesus responds. And praise God, Jesus responds. Because in that reality, we learn something about His relationship to us. He responds. We have a Savior, a God, who responds. Cry out to Christ. He will respond. He will hear. And notice what He does. Verse 40. He stopped. I I don't really want to overemphasize any one word in scripture but I also certainly don't want to underemphasize any word in scripture for me this has huge connotations and implications to it because I I'm studying this text right on the heels of Jesus going to Jerusalem talking about the purpose and the mission and the direction of Christ his heart his face being set towards the cross he was born to die And on that mission and on that journey, drawing ever closer with complete dedication and complete diligence and commitment that will not be deterred, He stops. And in my mind I say, what in the world is worth stopping for? Because at this point in time, Jesus, you've already told me you're going to be flogged, spit upon, mocked, shamefully treated, killed, arrested by pagans. And you're still going to Jerusalem. So your your commitment is unquestioned. What is so significant for you, Jesus, to stop? This word is is not in my mind just a a physical description of Jesus's act. There are, I think, deep spiritual overtones here. Because who does Jesus stop for? The blind beggar. What makes Jesus delay Jerusalem even just for a moment with such commitment that He's already displayed? It's the roadside beggar. When the crowd says no and the crowd says be quiet and Jesus has something to do he still hears and he stops. He responds. We're not like that. We let trivial things get in the way before we respond to a human being. Oh, hold on. I'll get back to you. I've got to go walk the dog. Hold on. I'll get back to you. I've got to go wash the car. Far less significant things prevent us from considering or engaging another human being, but not Jesus. When someone cries out for him, he stops. And then Luke gives some um, stern language of his own for Jesus. The crowd has the stern language of rebuke and be silent. Jesus has this stern word himself, command. He commands that the blind man be brought to him. I find that word to be wonderful as well. Because our Lord is not just saying, well, Peter, what do you think? Should I mess with the, the beggar? Well, you know, it's not very popular right now. The crowd's chanting, rebuke him, rebuke him. Let's just keep going. It's not worth my time or effort. Everybody's ready to get to Jerusalem. Get to Jerusalem. We're all tired. We're hungry. We've been walking for a while. Let's, let's at least wait till we get into Jericho before we start messing with more people. No, that's not at all how Jesus responds. Over against the crowd, over against everybody else's expectations, Jesus says, not an option, bring him to me. Which is a huge indictment on this crowd, right? The one you're rebuking, I command you to bring him to me. In other words, Jesus is saying, You think one way, but this beggar will be in my presence. And he does, brings him. He is in the presence. Verse 40, he's commanded and he comes near to Jesus. The blind roadside beggar finds himself in the presence of divinity In the presence of the Savior. He's invited into Jesus' presence. Verse 41 is intriguing, isn't it? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks. Well, it's pretty plain and obvious what's wrong with the man. He's blind and poor and alone. And Jesus isn't blind. He knows what's going on. That phrase tells me something about Jesus' thoughts towards this man. It tells me that he's not reducing this man to his disability. He's not reducing this man to his blindness. He's not reducing this man to his poverty. He's not reducing this man to his social status. He's not reducing this man to his mistakes. He's engaging the man as a person. Let's hear from you. Let's hear from your heart. Let's hear from your mouth. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you care about. And as is fit with what's already been stated, the blind man in verse 41 calls Jesus Lord. After calling Him Son of David, it's totally a submission-oriented term. I humble myself to You. I'm submitting myself to You, Lord. Respectfully, humbly, honestly, this is my request. Let me, let me recover my sight. Do what no one else can do. Look, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what struggles are in your heart today or this week, what, what distractions are in your mind, what burdens are weighing in your life. But that is a a prayer to be prayed. Jesus, I need You to do what only You can do. This blind man's exhibiting faith. His request itself is an acknowledgement of Jesus' supremacy over not just creation, but even over His own body, even over His own eyes. Jesus, I know You're more than just another individual and this whole crowd of people. You're a Lord of creation. And what you say goes. I need you to be Lord over my eyes right now. Lord over my body right now. I will admit, at first I thought this to be an unimportant and insignificant request in comparison to Jesus going to Jerusalem to the cross but Jesus doesn't ignore this. He doesn't ignore what seems to me to be a misplaced request. He he's instead exhibits mercy and grace. He hears and He acts. And He gives this man His request. His eyes are compassionately and lovingly directed to the man who has no eyes to see, who's in desperate physical need and desperate spiritual need, and Jesus meets that need. Verse 42, He responds, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Your belief in Me. Your trust in Me. Your submission to Me and acknowledgement of of me has made you well. The word well there could also be translated saved. Which would tell the original reader in Greek to understand there's lots going on here. Yes, physical healing, but also spiritual healing. When the, when the man's eyes are made well, his heart is made well. So when he already saw Jesus with his heart, now he sees Jesus with his eyes. And how does he respond? Verse 43. Immediately, he recovered his sight. He was saved physically, spiritually made well. And he followed Him, glorifying God. That's the only proper response to Jesus. That's it. To forsake everything and follow Him and glorify God as you go. And for one, in one sense, that's not um, a tall order for this blind man, right? I mean, it's not like he's got a whole lot to his name. Some might say it's easy for him to give up everything because he doesn't have a a whole lot of everything. And so when Jesus says, follow me, he just goes. And on the other hand, for anybody who's been in his situation before, when you are in poverty, every single possession you might own is the world to you. Because it's all you have. Regardless, this man says, none of it is worth losing Jesus. He leaves his roadside bed and joins this crowd in pursuit of the Lord. There's another miracle that happens here. It's the end of verse 43. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The the point of the text is Jesus. It's always Jesus. Jesus. And what's Jesus done here? He's changed the heart of a blind man and changed the heart of a crowd of people in in one miraculous act. So now this crowd that was opposed to the blind man interacting with Jesus is now found to be praising Jesus for His interaction with the blind man. Because they've seen God's hand at work now. They see this man's been changed to to join us. He's now one of us. He's following us, following Jesus. He's glorifying God with us, which I would hope in their minds would say, it's never too late for someone to be saved. It's never too late for someone to join the group and follow Jesus and glorify God. And that's wonderful news for us. Why is that wonderful news for us? Let me wrap up by saying this. That's wonderful news for us because in this story, we're the blind beggar. Every one of us, we are the roadside beggar. And not in our commendable act of persistence to find Jesus. We're the roadside beggar in our poverty. We're the roadside beggar in our inability to see We're the poor ones. We're the ones in desperate need. We're the ones who are disabled in our hearts to know and follow God. We're the ones who are socially ostracized from the kingdom of God. We're the ones living on the outside of the kingdom of God, like this man lives on the outside of Jericho. We are the roadside beggar We're the ones who have nothing to offer. Who are malnourished. Begging for food. Smelly. Disgusting. Poorly clothed. In great need. To live. No help whatsoever. No ability to care for ourselves. That's us. We're thankful Jesus responds to this man because we are this man and we need Jesus to respond to us. We need Jesus to stop for us. We need Jesus to command that we be brought near. We need Jesus to engage us. We're the ones who aren't taken care of. We're the ones who are pleading out, crying out, Jesus Have mercy on me. Intervene. Do something only you can do. I can't take care of my sin. I can't pay the penalty. I can't live up to the law. I can't meet the standard. I can't meet the requirement to heaven. There's not an ounce of me that is good. Not an ounce of me that is worthy. The same cry of the blind man is our cry. Son of David, have mercy on me. And and your pride is the crowd saying, be quiet. Your love for your reputation is the crowd saying, be quiet. Your stuff is the crowd saying, be quiet. The world around you, your friends, your family, they're they're the ones saying, be quiet. Right? Because our pride says, no, you're good enough, you're saved. Don't go down and make a fool of yourself thinking you thought you were saved and now you're not. Don't, Don't go humble yourself before a group of people who think you have it all together. Don't kid yourself. what's my wife going to think or my husband going to think or my kids going to think or my grandkids going to think or my co-workers going to think I've been sharing the gospel with them what are they going to think when I tell them I actually wasn't saved there are lots of people rebuking us to be silent there are lots of reasons for us to keep our mouths shut we ought to be like the blind beggar crying out evermore son of David have mercy on me if you realize that if you've really come to realize you're the roadside beggar don't let anything rebuke you to be silent plead with the son of david to have mercy on you and and let me tell you if he if you do there's a a beautiful promise in scripture that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you realize you're the roadside beggar and you don't care what your reputation says or your pride or your friends or whatever other crowd is rebuking you to be silent, if you don't care and you cry out for mercy, He will respond. And He will stop. And He will command that you be brought near. And He'll ask you, what is it that you need And you tell him, I need salvation. And he will say, done. And then you join with us following Jesus. As imperfectly as we do, follow Jesus and glorifying God. And we'll be the people who praise God because of it. Maybe you're you're already in the crowd following Jesus, two cautions here. One, let us never rebuke people to be silent when they seek after Jesus. Oh, let us never be the reason that someone would be prevented from Christ. Let us, like Jesus, embrace all the roadside beggars we can. Because that's us. And number two, let us always give praise to God for the salvation of the lost. When we see people have their eyes restored, the eyes of their hearts given light. Let us give praise to God. Again, I don't know where you've been this week. And I don't know what you've wrestled with but I do know Jesus and I do know who you are before Jesus. We're all the roadside beggar and we all need to cry out for the Son of David to have mercy on us. And I do know who Jesus is. He will stop and have mercy on us. The question is, will you cry out? Will you cry out for salvation? Maybe you are a believer and you just need to cry out for something else. Guidance, hope, victory, peace good news is this Jesus is an unchanging Jesus. And Luke 19.10 is still true. He came to seek and to save the lost. And part of that saving the lost for those of us who are Christians means seeing us through to the glories of heaven. That's the Jesus we know. That's the Jesus we proclaim. It's the Jesus we sing about. And that's the Jesus we pray to. And we ought not be afraid to come before Him. Lord, we aren't right now afraid to come before You because we are crying out with this gentleman in Luke 18. We're crying out for mercy. O oh Christ, have mercy. Son of David, the promised one, the deliverer, our our redeemer. Have mercy and work in the hearts of the lost and strengthen the heart of your children. Save us. Use us. Welcome us into your fold. Help us to follow you, to pick up ourselves and leave our roadsides behind and follow you and glorify you. Praising You. Telling people often of what You've done for us. Do this work that only You can do in our hearts. For Your glory, Jesus. It's in Your name we pray. We love You. Amen.